0: week four of the series we've entitled Thread Letters. And just to give you a recap, if you're joining us for the first time, we're moving through a powerful prayer, but here's the premise. It's not in your notes, but you can write it down. Prayer is the key to everything you should do and be. Until you take a moment in prayer, which is communication to God, until you find the opportunity to to step away from the busyness of life as was Jesus' own custom. Jesus prayed. He had to step away after he was weak, after he was tired, after he was exhausted, he's around people, he's like, these people, I love them, I'm gonna die for them, but man, they're getting on my nerves. He had to get away and pray. And prayer is the key to everything you should do and be. When we pray, he takes the searchlight. And we say, search our heart, O God, find anything, any anxious thought. And he searches our heart and prayer is the key to who we're becoming and how we're we're behaving. He says, hey, prayer is the key to strength. All of the psalmists, they write and their their poems and their their writings are prayers to God. And you can see them strengthened in the Lord as they cry out and as they As they pray, prayer is the key to everything you should do and be. And the one thing the disciples asked, they didn't ask, how do you walk on water? Maybe they did, it's not recorded in scripture. They didn't ask, how do you raise the dead? How'd you turn that little to-go box from Long John's into thousands of meals? How did you do that? They asked him, Lord, teach us to pray because there was something powerful about his prayer. And his response to that question, Lord, teach us to pray, is the Lord's prayer. Now we've been saying it out loud, but I hope we're not just saying it. I'm inviting us every week that when we say it, we pray it. When we're saying it, we're really praying it because it's a prayer, it's not a pledge of allegiance. You can sit under God indivisible and not mean a word, not even understand a word, not even get it, and you're pledging allegiance? This is a prayer, and so I invite you, as we say it out loud at all of our locations, let's really say it with an an attitude of, of prayer, like really praying it over our hearts, our lives, our family, our children. Think about where you are right now and pray this prayer with me. Here we go, let's say it out loud. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. And if we just say it, you can say it and have nothing change in your life. The enemy knows scripture. The devil knows this prayer. But when you apply it, In fact, write it down in your notes. Every phrase is a thread that connects and compresses the fabric of biblical doctrine into one prayer. Jesus takes the whole idea of the word of God and compresses it down. That if the only thread you're hanging by in life is the thread of the Lord's prayer, it's a thread you can hang by and every piece as we've been going through it. We've been in three different sections so far. Our Father, hallowed and thy kingdom come. Our Father, until you know the trajectory of the prayer, you've got to see him, you've got to see God as your Father. Look at me, everybody. This is a huge issue in all of us, whether you believe it or not, whether you know it or not, whether you've investigated it or not, whether you've met with a counselor or not. I want you to know, I meet with a counselor at least two times a month. Oh, I need my pastor to be strong. Yeah, because... I'm stronger because I meet with a counselor. I'm stronger because I meet with a counselor. Do you know that you can't tickle yourself? (laughs) You can't tickle yourself. (laughs) Do you know there are some things you just can't see and there's some things you just can't process? The same way you can't tickle yourself, there's some things that you need someone to process with. Jesus, well, you ought to go to the Father, yeah, the Father, and I have a counselor that helps, a Christian counselor. But I want you to know that there are daddy issues with all of us, no matter how good your dad was. Let me show you this way. If this right here is a terrible dad, I know that some of you, that's where it is. Some of you had a decent dad. Some of you had an okay dad. Some of you had a great dad. And we will look at God when we get into trouble and we need help from our father. We only see him as good as we see our own family, our own father or our absentee father, or our emotionally uh, disconnected father. And that's how, if you're not careful, that's how you will see. But let me show you, God is not. We sing you're a good, good father, but it's actually not completely correct. Your dad may have been a good, good father, but God is a perfect father father so if this is a good father above the skies our father in heaven hallowed be thy name way above what you could ask or imagine or dream of or think of as good or bad as your dad on this earth was i want you to know god is greater and better and stronger and more stable and more constant he is constant he is faithful and he's got good gifts to give to his children i want you to see god that way because you can't understand the rest of this prayer until you know he's a perfect father. Hallowed be thy name gives us the understanding to not see him just as useful, like a tool in your tool belt. Don't see him as useful, see him as beautiful, Pastor Cameron said. Thy kingdom come. We're living in two kingdoms. Woe, kingdom, woe is you, kingdom, and the blessed are you, kingdom, and the whichever kingdom you're living in is based on wherever Jesus is on the throne. If Jesus is on the throne of your marriage, your marriage is living in the kingdom but if your last word in edgewise is on the throne of your marriage, you're living in the woe kingdom, in the woe kingdom, thy kingdom come. And we get to part four, thy will be done. And I want you to know that these four words, whether you realize it or not, just by quoting the Lord's prayer, these four words are the absolute hardest words to really pray. They're the most difficult words. You may think, God, get me a spouse. God, forgive me of that sin. Because you think that sin, this is the hardest prayer to pray. Thy will be done the good news is Jesus gives us the power and the model on how to pray it. So you don't have to pray it with your own model, with your own understanding, you actually submit to his way. You submit to not your own understanding, but his life, his guidance. And he gives us the model and the power, the power to pray thy will be done. And that's where we're gonna set up camp today. Write this down. This phrase is the only one found in Jesus' personal prayer life. Out of the Lord's prayer, He does say father, but he doesn't say our father. This is the first time he says our father, but in the garden of Gethsemane, which we read earlier during our worship segment, we're reading that thy will be done is the only time that the Lord's prayer, a piece of it, Jesus actually is praying it. And it's powerful and it's hard to pray because of a few things. Write this down. This phrase runs right in the teeth of culture. You and I live in the American dream, living in the good old USA, born in the USA. We are living against thy will be done every single day and our American dream desires for you to live against it. Founded on biblical principles, this nation was, I just sounded like Yoda, (laughs) But yet, it's the hardest thing to pray. Why? Why? Because here's the deal: in our culture, in our culture, this world doesn't think you're happy and fulfilled and have real joy un- unless you go against Thy will be done and you say My will be done. My will be done means all utmost happiness. As long as I get what I need from who I need it from, as long as I get what I want that will fulfill that need. My will be done is the better prayer that we like to pray and hope to pray and hope to get answered. Some of you need to thank God that he has not answered some of your prayers. You're wanting God to answer a prayer that if if you answered your will, my will be done, it would be devastation for you. You don't even know what he's kept you from. You don't even know what he's unanswered in order to really give you what you need, okay? But here's what culture says, write them down. The more choices you have, the happier you are. I like to be able to choose. I want this. I want that. Give me some options. Give me some people. Give me some things. Give me some stuff. I want to be able to have all the different value meals. I need 74 value meals at McDonald's alone. I like the more choices I have. I mean, Ruth Chris will give you like a little, this nice steakhouse will give you a tiny little menu. And and that's nice. You go to cheesecake factory or well, that's, pretty decent, but it's like 54 pages. ain't no way they do everything good on those pages. Ain't no way, 54 pages at the Cheesecake Factory? Go to Golden Corral. It's all good at Golden Corral, though. I'm not gonna lie, I love it all. I just love it, I just love it all. Where can you get a steak, a chicken pot pie, eggs and bacon, and a chocolate fountain? Mmm. the promised land, Golden Corral. (laughs) The more choices you have, (laughs) and a heart attack on the side. (laughs) The happier you are, that's what culture wants to say. As long as you can choose, as long as you're free to be me, free to be me, that's real happiness. Don't you dare make a choice for me. Don't you dare tell me how to live. And that comes to the next one. Authority is inherently suspect. In the culture we live in, we are questioning anybody and everybody in authority. And it's why Jesus gives us direction on how to honor our father and mother, gives us direction how to submit to authority because we are built with this inherent suspicion against authority. Well, what, what do you mean I can't? I can park wherever I want. What uh, In the Lufkin location, what do you mean these seats are covered? Bless God, this is church. I'm about to I'll sit where I want, I'll pay my tithes up in here. I'm gonna sit wherever I want. And we're just inherently suspect of authority in any kind of ways, any kind of ways. With our family. Like, I wanna do it. No, it's dad's way or the highway. You say that, right? Or, or, or no, no, not gonna do that. We learn that at an early age. We get into college, like, let me live my life. I can't wait till I get out of the house and make my own Decisions authority, it's suspect. Freedom is the highest good. And I mean, Christians who mean well are living so scared. You know why? I'm just going to tell you because you got both feet in the wrong kingdom. Elections matter. Your vote counts. I urge you to understand the word of God and see your politics through the lens of a biblical filter, not let your politics and how you were raised and what you think and your will be done, my will be done, then look at the Bible through that. I urge you, let the word of God be the moral compass of your life. In every decision you make from raising kids to choosing jobs to voting in candidates or voting out candidates or you name it, whatever, put the right things in the right order. But I can tell you, We are so thirsty for freedoms, life, liberties, the pursuit of happiness, that we will say my will be done on freedoms if we feel like even our freedom. Can I just tell you the White House is not gonna build the church and the gates of hell are gonna prevail against it. Jesus said, I'll build my church, not I'll build my government. He institutes government, government, marriage and family in the church, God ordained it. But when you try to live where other people are going to answer your will for your life, It's not, that is incomplete and imperfect, but Jesus is gonna build his church. And can I just remind you that many times the church thrives in an upside down kingdom. In other words, when things get bad, the church gets going. When people get persecuted, Jesus steps, the Holy Spirit starts moving in a way that we we don't normally see. So just get ready, no matter what happens. Be engaged, but understand your kingdom is not of this world. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And you and I, we can learn to pray, thy will be done in a life transforming way. Because here's the deal you're probably not going to pray, thy will be done in a powerful way until his will comes in direct uh, pushback against where you are, what you want, what you're experiencing. So when things are moderately good, you can say, thy will be done. But what about when the cancer's back? What about when the kid is sick? What about when the marriage doesn't look? What about when you were, you, you, you were slapped in the face with this unbelievable heartache tragedy that you didn't see? Coming. You can't hold on to it. You you buckle under it. That's the kind of pressure that Jesus is experiencing in the garden, and yet he shows us how to pray thy will be done in a life-transforming way because he's having to navigate the real emotions and turmoil of life just like you have to. And we see Jesus in the garden. And I wanna show you a few thoughts. And I wanna tell you, I've been preparing for this message for about five weeks. And I feel like this is a critical point in this series. Th- this message, it doesn't have um, as much humor in it. I, I like to like, you know, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. I just want you to know there's not a lot of sugar today. Because every once in a while, I don't think church ought to be boring. I think church ought to be fun. I think you ought to laugh in church, but sometimes uh, there ought to be some breaking in church too. Now I'm not gonna leave you broken, but I hope that we can break some things down and see where Jesus wants to put it all back together. But you gotta understand some things first. You gotta see some intensity first. If you wanna taste and see that the Lord is good, you gotta know what he did that makes him so good. So the first element is this, if you're taking notes, I want you to, Taste the magnitude of his agony in the garden. As we read this scripture from Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is normally, when he's exhausted, he goes to pray and he's rejuvenated. He goes to pray and he sees the compassion. He goes into his ministry. He dips down into the water. He's baptized by John. He comes up and his father in heaven, before he could ever work a miracle, before he ever turned water into wine, before he ever did anything good, before he ever took next steps, his father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He's the delight of my life. And every time Jesus goes to pray, he has the, the presence of his father. He knows his father better than you and I. And we read the scripture that in this moment, as he begins to pray, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. This is agony. This is shock. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. He doesn't want to go on. Have you ever received shocking news? But before you get it, someone has to call you or sit, talk to you and say, I need you to sit down. Are you, stand, are you sitting down? because the news is so powerful, it may knock you off your feet. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground. He feels like I'm gonna die right here. And he prays three times, I don't wanna go through what I'm about to go through. And I think a question you and I need to ask about this, the magnitude of Christ's agony. Understand, this isn't a show. This isn't a drama. He's not on the stage. This is real. And he's feeling all of the weight that you and I feel to the point way beyond what we've ever felt, unless you've been to a point of exhaustion and stress and even anxiety and sorrow and overwhelmedness where your pores open up and you begin to bleed, sweat, mixed with blood. That's where Jesus is. Now, question, why is Jesus so shocked and overwhelmed? Why is he so so shocked and overwhelmed? This isn't the first God follower who has faced pending death. This isn't the first God follower that is about ready to walk in and do something for God in a miraculous way. When you go back into the Old Testament and you go to three Hebrew children known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Nebuchadnezzar said, dance everybody, worship everybody, worship this idol, and everybody bow down when the music plays. And they started hearing the music. And you're welcome. And they don't bow they're not overwhelmed, they're not sorrowful, they're not in shock, they don't bleed droplets of, they don't sweat droplets of blood. As a matter of fact, they are escorted to the king. The king turns up the furnace seven times hotter, even to the point where the guard falls down dead because it's so hot and he says, you're not gonna bow. He says, we're not gonna bow, God's gonna save us. And then Shadrach, Meshach and Benny say, and even if he doesn't save us, we're still not gonna bow and they stood against cultural pressure. And they basically, in essence, said, thy will be done. And they walked in the fire and God was with them in the flames. So why is Jesus so shocked if Shadrach could make it through this? Why? Because look, it's not the normal response for those that are giving their life for God. The first martyr after Jesus dies, it resurrected in his sins. His name is Stephen. Stephen. And when Stephen is about to be put to death in the middle of the street, Saul, who later, uh, his name is Paul, holding the coats because they're warming up to stone Stephen to death. In Acts 7, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then they killed him. And they, they, they rushed him, they dragged him out, and they stoned him to death. And yet in that, Stephen's like, the goodness of God and Jesus is saying, "Oh my God, Oh my God! Fast forward 1500, years. Martin Luther nails the 95th thesis to the door, meaning that he's separating from the Catholic Church, and he gives 95 reasons to understand it. We aren't saved by our works or saved by the church. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not by works lest any man should boast. And two of those fathers that come out of the Catholic church and into this new reformation, a reformed way of seeing salvation and seeing Jesus and understanding the gospel, the good news of God, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, they become heretics and the church themselves tie them to a post in the middle of Oxford, England. There is a memorial. Uh, that stands to this day for them giving their lives. They are are tied to this post. They are lit on fire like witches burned in Salem. These men of God die for the faith in Christ Jesus. And before they die, they are not sorrow and trouble trouble filled and overwhelmed. Uh, Latimer says to Ridley, play the man, Master Ridley. Meaning, be trustworthy. Don't lose faith, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Who does that? Especially when you see the model of Jesus because Jesus, it's not the normal response and the truth is, it's not a surprise. Because Jesus is part of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He was there before the foundations of the earth were formed. And the Bible says before the foundations of the earth were formed, the lamb would be slain. Jesus knew even in the garden as he watched God form Adam and Eve. And there in community with the Holy Spirit, they see the story of men that do not try to get close to God, but God that desperately tries to get close to man. And they see us fail after time, time, after time, after time, after time, after time. And God knows, Jesus knows, his assignment is to be the ultimate Sacrifice for our sin. It wasn't a surprise. He even said to the Pharisees, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. He's not talking about the brick and mortar. He's talking about him. Destroy me, I'm gonna be resurrected in three days. I'm coming, I'm gonna die. He tells his disciples, I won't be with you all the time. I won't be with you always. The time has near, the time has come. This isn't a surprise. So why is Jesus so shocked and so overwhelmed and full of sorrow, our Jesus? Why? I mean, he's perfect, isn't he? Raising the dead, healing the sick, blind eyes open, walking on water. Because for the first time, Jesus is given a foretaste of what his father's absence feels like. Even when he was 12 years old, his earthly mom and dad forgot about him. They thought he was in the entourage heading back to Nazareth. They realize he's not there. They go back to the big city and he's nowhere to be found. And they look for him for days. They find him on the fourth day, he's in the temple. And he says, mom and dad, don't you know, I gotta be about my father's business. He understood relationship with the father like you and I just don't yet. We just don't yet. It's like looking through a mirror darkly. Someday we'll see clearly, but we don't get what Jesus exactly got quite Yet, and Jesus has given a, a taste of what his father's absence feels like. Every time he would go to his father, he had joy and peace and comfort and compassion. And now he goes to pray and he's not feeling those things. He's not experiencing those things. The grace is lifting off of his life because he's becoming the sacrifice for our sin. And what's happening here is Jesus is being given a foretaste of the cup of judgment. Right there in the garden, they had celebrated an hour earlier with the cup of wine and the bread, the Passover meal. And in the Passover agenda, it's called the Seder, the Passover agenda, there are several different pieces that you do and you say and you pray. Part of it involves not just drinking the cup once, but actually four different times. And every time they would drink the cup, they remember a promise of God found in Exodus 6. Exodus 6, 6 and 7 says, I'm the Lord and I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my people. Those four core promises of God are still active and alive today. But those Jewish people, they would sip the cup and they would remember, I'll bring you out. They would sip the wine, I will free you. So when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he's not saying have a party in remembrance of me. It's like every time you sip and you say, I'll bring you out, it ain't that lamb that was on the doorpost that really brought you out. That was a shadow of the things to come. I'm the one that brings you out. Okay, Moses and the staff and the parting of the Red Sea didn't free you. I free you. I free you. I drink that cup. And now there's one more cup for Jesus to drink. And it's the cup of judgment. And it's as though the father has met him in that garden. Just him and his father. And he slides that cup over to Jesus. For the first time, Jesus is beginning to understand the depth of it. He's he's picking up notes of what judgment and wrath are gonna be like. He's looking at it in the glass metaphorically, and he's about to drink the cup of judgment for all of humanity. What is the cup of judgment? The cup of judgment is basically God's judicial punishment and wrath on human evil. Something has to die because of the evil and because of the walking away from God. Something or someone. All throughout the Old Testament, the people of God would have to drink the cup of wrath of God because they did not have a substitute. They didn't have the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus. And they are learning slowly but surely, they can't fix it all. They'll always be drinking this cup, so Jesus drinks it for them. Even in Ezekiel chapter 23, you'll be filled with sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation. You shall drink and drain it, like down to the dregs, and tear at your own breasts. In other words, it's just oh, the, the, the judgment and the wrath on human sin. And Jesus drank that for you and me, everybody. You know, it brings us to an important question. Do you and I, do we really, do we really believe in the wrath of God? Because I'm gonna suggest that a lot of people don't. You like your Jesus full of love. The wrath thing doesn't make sense to you. How could a loving God be angry? How could a loving God pour out wrath? How could a loving God give punishment? Jesus did not go to the cross and experience his father's absence. All of the world's sin packed upon him and be the substitute for the debt that you owe just to do it. You can't understand God's love for you unless you understand God's wrath because God's love was poured out for you on the cross because Jesus drank the wrath For you. There he is in the garden, and the father is saying, Look, somebody's got to drink this cup, son. And I know they won't even stay awake with you. But those little teenage boys, those little young boys, they're going to drink this cup if you don't. All of humanity is going to drink my wrath unless you drink it, and this is why. I love them so much, I'm giving you, I'm giving you my only son. Tim Keller says it like this, the deeper you grasp, the deeper your grasp of God's wrath on sin, the more wondrous the cost he bore to forgive us and save us from that same sin. This is the cup that he's about to drink. So I want you to understand the magnitude of the son of the living God Maybe your dad never said something that you wish he would have said, but Jesus had his father split open the sky and say, this is my son, I'm pleased with him. And that same father begins to forsake him. See the magnitude that he went through for you. Number two, see the immediacy of the agony in the garden? Here's another question that I, I'm, I'm wrestling with and I, and I think you need to wrestle to see the goodness and grace and beauty, the beautifulness of God. Because here's the question I got. Maybe you got it too. Why now? Why here? In a few, in a few moments, Judas is gonna give the betrayal kiss. Jesus is gonna be stripped down naked he is going to be mocked and ridiculed a crown of thorn a crown of thorns on his head his beard plucked out spat upon mocked laughed given a fake robe uh, to barely cover his naked body he is going to be condemned probably some of the people that received fish and bread on a hillside are now standing in the courts with Pontius Pilate and they are saying, give us Barabbas, this killer, this thief, this criminal and crucify Jesus. And he's gonna be given a cross. He's gonna be carried out. He's gonna be walked out of the city to the point of exhaustion where he can't even carry his own cross. Beaten within an inch of his life with a whip and placed on Calvary for all to see. Isn't it enough, God, that you would do all that? Why start here? Why start in the garden? Why make him carry all of this? He's having to carry his cross. Why make him feel all this? That's not fair, God. Why would a loving God make me feel all these things? tell you why. If God waited to pour out the cup of judgment on Jesus, if he waited until he was suspended by three nails on a tree, Jesus has no more choice. What's done is done. There is no going back. There is no free will. There is no change. There is no shift. There is no Okay, angels, I I think I've had enough. But in the middle of the night, when no one else is looking, when the only people you have close to you are asleep, when the guards aren't there yet, there is no torches in the middle of the night, he could slip away. He could slip away. He, he He knows where the boats are. He could walk on water if he wanted He could get over to the other side of Samaria. He could disguise himself. He could cut his hair. He could change everything. He could leave a little note on the stone in the garden of Gethsemane saying, I went to heaven. You guys got this. He was free to leave. Write it down, Jesus is completely free to leave in this moment, and it makes his sacrifice all the more greater, his love all the more wondrous, his obedience all the more perfect, so that when you don't love right, and when you aren't obedient enough, you can look at the perfect, unmatching, matchless love of God that poured himself out for you when he didn't have to because nobody was looking, he could have just went through the back door of the garden and the story would have been completely different. This is God's way of showing us this is an act of love, not compulsion. He's not getting his arm twist by the God of the universe to go to the cross against his will. He has every right to leave, every right to pour out the cup and just move on. But he chose to do it anyway, why? Look in a mirror, look in a mirror. It's why he did it for you. Notice in your notes that I said in the gardens, because this story really didn't just start in this garden. This story started in in the first garden. And in the first garden, God was there with Adam. The apostle Paul will later in 1 Corinthians and in Romans say that Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is our second Adam. Adam got it wrong. Jesus got it right. The first Adam failed. The second Adam was perfect. But in the first garden, listen to what God says. He puts Adam and Eve in paradise. There's all kinds of trees, all kinds of fruit, not just two in the center of the garden, but the two that he names are the tree of life, which they can eat any (laughs) time. I'm gonna be 42, 190. Like it was just gonna be forever, forever, forever. It was gonna be good, tree of life. But there was another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And out of all the things God said, he said, do not. You know what the enemy does to us? Do you know the first words that God says to Adam in the garden? You are free to eat from any tree. You are free, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you'll die when the enemy comes in to tempt Adam and Eve, and he starts with Eve, notice that the devil says, did God not say, did God really say, you must not? And some of you live, believing that lie. Because the first words out of God's mouth was not, you must not, and some of you live trying to serve God, like he's a, you must not God. You must not do this, you must not have fun, you must not be good, you must not, you must not, you must not, and yet the first words Jesus, God says to Adam and Eve, you are free. That's his intended life. That's his intended life, and the devil wants to twist things up, and you think that living in his kingdom is all about you must not. No, 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 no. Living in his kingdom is you are free, really free. Like, not the kind of American free, or this free, or this kind of free, but you are really, really free when you live in his kingdom, you're free. So the Adam, Adam is there in perfection in a beautiful garden. He says, you're free, but here's what I'm asking you. God says to the first Adam, obey me about this tree. Obey me about this tree. And here's what I'll do. I'll be with you. I'll walk with you in the garden. We'll have conversations un unfettered conversations. I'll be with you. You'll live forever. What will it be, Adam? And when Adam is placed with the opportunity to obey God with the tree, he says four words, but his four words are, my will be done. Could have had everything, it was beautiful, but he chose his own throne, his own will. But now we see things coming full circle and in this garden, God says to his one and only son, the second Adam, obey me about this tree. And it's not a tree with fruit. It's not the tree of the good, knowledge of good and evil. It's a tree that will be your execution. The tree that you will be suspended. I will, if you be lifted up on this tree, you will draw men unto you. But will you obey me without, obey me about this tree? And if you do, here's my promise. If you'll obey me about this tree, God says to his son in the garden of Gethsemane in the midst of his unbelievable sorrow and overwhelmingness. And if you obey me, I'll crush you to powder and you will be forsaken and die. And Jesus says, thy will be done when he didn't even have to go through with it. Can you feel the love of your savior today? Can you understand the depth of his choice for you today? So how do we put handlebars on this? How do we weave thy will be done into everyday prayer? Because just saying thy will be done, there's gonna be times where things aren't good and it's not just saying thy will be done. You're gonna have to wrestle. Jesus wrestled, it's okay to wrestle. And so there are three things I want you to remember. When we go to this part of the prayer in your prayer time, you get to, thy will be done. Can you remind yourself of some things? Can you go back? Can you go back and hear the rustling of the olive tree leaves? Can you envision the group of disciples outside the garden, the three closest compadres in the inner courts of the garden, Jesus away to himself falling on his face, overwhelmed for you. Three things you can remember in this moment when you get to thy will be done. Remember this, remember his integrity. His wholeness. Look, look, look. Your integrity is really what you are when no one's looking. And what we struggle with is we are one way in the light and we're another way in the dark. And don't think that that doesn't apply to you. It applies to all of us. Sometimes we're the same in the light as we are in the dark if nothing's on the line. But when the pressure's on, Things are bad, nobody else, nobody else, you're not on a video recorder and you say some things and you do some things and you think some things when you're in the dark. Nobody else can see it and think it and know it, but you and God know it. Your integrity isn't intact because you don't have perfect integrity. I want you to remember, you can pray "Thy will be done because his integrity is flawless. That means his will even when his will doesn't feel perfect, it is. It's perfect. He also has a way of when you took a detour, he can still bring about his perfect will in the middle of that mess. Remember his integrity. Here's what we see about Jesus. Jesus is the same in the dark as he is in the light. When no one else is looking and everybody's sleeping, he could have said, "I don't know about this. Oh, hey, hey, listen disciples, he told me we got to go to Samaria quick." And they would have followed him. But he knew what he had to do. He faced it. He faced it head on, face to the ground. He's the same in the dark as he is in the light, and you're not, and so you trust in his integrity, not your own. I'm a good boy. I got my all my spiritual ducks in a row. I go to church. I serve. I make sure to give my tithe and all of that, and you can be with major issues in your life that you've not relented to the Father. You've not surrendered to the Father. You're still saying, I gave my tithe. I showed up to church. I taught kids and kid works, and my will be done when it, when it comes to my attitude towards my spouse, towards my private life, towards the things things that get, me, that get me going, all of that, my will be done. So remember his integrity gets us to the place to, to access the power of his spirit inside of us to say that I will be done when it doesn't feel good. Remember his emotional honesty. Aren't you thankful about this? You don't, I don't know if you get this or not, how powerful it is that Jesus didn't walk into the depths of the garden and say, above all else, ha, thy will be done. (laughs) Three times, Jesus, Jesus, son of the living God, three times, had to pray, I don't know about this. This is gonna be hard. My will be done. You guys aren't awake. I need you, I need you right now. But, but they weren't gonna fulfill what he really needed. And he goes again, a second time and a third time. You can approach God with absolute emotional honesty. Now, you don't get that and you don't understand it because I'm gonna tell you not always have my kids been able to approach me with absolute full-on emotional honesty. Dad, this sucks. I don't like this. I don't like I'm having to do this. i mean, be, boy, you want your teeth in your mouth or in your pocket? You gonna come up to me like that, go to your room. I don't wanna do it. I don't like this. You could get you, you respect my authority. Because I'm not, I'm not the perfect dad. God doesn't get his emotions all up in a twist when you cry out to him. But you feel better when you blurt it out on Facebook because other people will come back, oh, you just say it as it is. Just do it. And you get your fake this kingdom, not that kingdom, this kingdom high or comfort and you miss out on the thy will be done piece. Go to God and tell him everything. Cry out to him, admit it. God, I did this again. I've said it 150 times, I did it again. And I don't even know, I don't even know if if, if your face is even in front of me anymore. God, this isn't right that my kid is, is lost like this and addicted. What did I do wrong? What did they do wrong? What'd you do wrong? Why did not you save them from those friends? How could you even do this? What kind of God are you? Kids starving and dying? What kind of God are you? And you can be honest with God with your emotions. But it's healthy to pray both sides that you would come to God with your raw honesty and everything and questions. He's God enough and big enough. You're not gonna make him smaller. He's pretty big. He's pretty strong. He's pretty mighty, okay? But what that does is once you've let it go, you can remember he's the same in the light as he is in the dark. So nothing you could ever say will shock him. Nothing you could ever say will, he'll say, oh, what? No, we don't say that in church. You don't say that in my presence. You can be honest with him as a child. And then when you're honest and he hasn't slapped you, he's honest and he's there, He's on, you're honest and he's faithful, it brings you to begin to be able to say for the third time or the fifth time or the 10th time or however long it takes you, okay, okay, that will be done. I don't get it, but I trust you. I wish it were a different thing, but I trust you. I I wish that it would change, but I trust you. Thy will be done. He's not answering the way I wish you would answer. Thy will be done. Nope, it has ended. I've prayed and prayed and prayed for it to be refreshed and be renewed, but it's done, it's over, the relationship's done. Okay, thy will be done. Now you don't pray that thy will be done without the other side of crying out to God about all these things. Remember his endurance despite my weakness. His endurance despite my weakness. Jesus was perfect. Jesus had the utmost integrity. Jesus chose to sacrifice it all. Can I say something to you? let me give you a let me give you a statement. You won't love someone all the way down. Your, your kids, uh, them to you. You won't love someone all the way down until you trust them all the way down. Now, now understand this. And let, let, me, let me explain it. We think that love will keep us together, the old song says. Love is the cherry on top, it is not the foundation. The foundation of every relationship is trust. And here's how it works. Trust builds respect. Respect builds relationship. Relationship brings intimacy and then love is the crown on top of it all. And you choose to love, you don't feel love, you choose it because sometimes you don't feel it. But you won't understand love and some people, look, look, watch, watch, look at this layers. Some people jump to sexual intimacy before they really trust, respect, and have a relationship. And you wonder why that causes issues. You wonder why Jesus talked about sexual intimacy in the Bible and the power of, of placing it in the right time, in the right place. Because it'll, it'll jack you up. It is not a lack of love that hurts the marriage. It is broken trust. We just don't know, how to ver- we don't know how to verbalize it. And so I want you to know you won't love someone all the way down until you trust them all the way down. And what Jesus shows us in the garden and on the cross and in everyday life, listen to me, take it to the bank, cash this sermon check today. You can trust him all the way down. You can trust him all the way down because he drank the cup all the way down, because he chose in the middle of it all, all the way down. You can trust him. But guess what? He cannot trust you all the way down. you, you, You cannot be trusted all the way down. You are not perfect. (laughs) But he loves you all the way down anyway while they not while they were serving, not while they were passing out plates, not while they were walking and getting on the boat and casting their nets on the other side, not while they were watching Lazarus raised from the dead, not while they were enjoying a wedding reception where water was turned into wine. Did Jesus take and drink the cup for the disciples? It was while they were sleeping. Could you not just stay awake? And on your best day, you cannot stay awake long enough to build the trust of the Father. So instead, He loves you all the way down whether you broke His trust or not. It's done, it's finished, it's paid for. Receive it. Just receive it. You got to get it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to fight for it. You don't have to wrestle with it. You don't have to drink the cup. He drank the cup for you. Just receive it and walk in it. And the more you understand His love all the way down, you can trust him all the way down to the point where it doesn't make sense. And man, I've messed it up and man, I don't know why, but thy will be done. And so today we take our little communion elements that represent the bread and the juice, the body and the blood of Jesus, at all locations, it's gonna sound like we're an 82-year-old grandpa trying to open a Werther's original for about five minutes here. So I'm just setting the tone, okay? So I'm gonna give you about 20 seconds to get the cellophane off of the top of this thing and get this thing opened up. Didn't it just sound like, sounds like it sounds like your grandpa opened up a Werther's right now, didn't it? Let me tell you that story when I had colon surgery. Okay, grandpa. But try as fast as you can to get that open and take the element in your hand. This is the bread and the juice. And I'll wait for a few more moments for all of our locations to get settled and kind of let the wrapping kind of die down. And here we are. Jesus takes the cup with the disciples and he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And they didn't even get it. They were just going through Passover and a couple hours later, they were sleeping. They were tired. They didn't know Judas Kiss was coming. A year later, maybe that when they took the cup for those that were still alive, it was then they said, oh. And so I want you to remember the magnitude of his agony. I want you to remember his choice in the garden way before the cross, that he was broken and bruised, his blood was poured out as the sacrifice for all the stuff in your life that you can't fix. And that's the kind of healing he brings. That's the kind of freedom I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my people. You won't, be, you won't be men and women in the Lord's army. You will be sons and daughters in my family. That's who I am. And that's what I paid for. With that in memory, your integrity, your honesty, your endurance, let's take the bread together. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done in my place. Perfect. And now take the juice. And friends, can I tell you about one more garden? That after his blood was poured out and his body was broken, he was placed in a tomb that wasn't even his own. It would would be how they dealt with nameless people. And yet three days later, in another garden, he loves us, but then he gives us power to live it. You don't have to rely on your own power because Jesus is resurrected. He's alive. And that same spirit that resurrected him can live in you. And here's all you'd do. You'd simply say, Jesus, live in me. I believe you are who you say you are. Thank you, Lord, for not being mad at me, but giving me this moment to make things right with you. I surrender to you. Be my savior, be my Lord. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in me. And I admit to you, Lord, I'm not perfect, but you are. Thank you for giving me this moment to make things right with you. In Jesus' name, amen.